Acts 19. The moon, the stars, the sun, the skies, the planets, the trees, the birds, the mountains, the rivers, the seas, day and night, light and darkness, everything that, was, that has ever existed was created by the God who spoke and it came to be. And everything is upheld by that same mysterious, almighty power. Believers, this power dwells within you. Does your life reflect it? The same God who hung the stars dwells within you. Does your life reflect it? With this in mind, let's read Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who... Who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with all kinds of backgrounds. We have all had joys and utter sadness and darkness and laughter. We have so many things going on in all of our lives, in each of our lives. God, would you speak to each one of us by your word? Would you open our minds Would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts so that what we see in your word, what you show us in your word, would change who we are? And for those of us who are brokenhearted, God, I pray that you would give us comfort. For those of us who have utter joy in what this week has brought, I pray that you would show us an even better joy. Would you, by your word, by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, speak to each one of us? Would you help us, God? We know by your word that you can. We know by your word that you absolutely desire to do so. So we ask for it. Would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you let us see who you are? Would you let us see a better picture of who you are? 
so that our hearts in return might be joyful in worship towards you. Help us, be with us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Spirit of God dwells in believers and brings with it the power of God. And the question is, does your life reflect this? The truth is, we don't know what this power, uh, we don't know about the power that dwells in us because we don't know necessarily what it looks like all the time. We don't know necessarily what this power gives us power to do. We can read that he does give us power, but we don't know what it looks like. God has given us Acts 19 for a glimpse and a help in this issue. In Acts 19, this Holy Spirit power shows itself in three ways in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit enables service. The Holy Spirit gives comfort. And the Holy Spirit produces true repentance. The Holy Spirit enables service, gives comfort, and produces true repentance. So let's look at the first one. The Holy Spirit enables service. We begin our passage with a bit of a quizzical exchange. Paul says, uh, were you guys baptized into the Holy Spirit? And they say, what's that? What, what, does, what does that mean? They haven't followed the same gospel and, and Acts narrative that we have uh, where we see Acts 1.8. They don't know Acts 1.8, but we see it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so when Paul tells them about this, they receive the Holy Spirit. But according to Acts 1.8, what is this power for? The power of witnessing. The power of sharing the good news of the gospel. And this is helpful for us to see because we see an important piece of the Holy Spirit power within us. He enables us to serve others. They immediately begin serving. They were speaking in tongues and prophesying. Uh, Some have taken this to mean that those who are saved, will speak in tongues or prophesy. But this is a description of what happened to these men in this time. It's not necessarily programmatic of what we are to expect. I was told once uh, that, I could not, that since I could not speak in tongues, that I wasn't a true believer. I've prayed for the gift, and I'm open to it, um, but God has never seen fit to give it to me. Uh, and you might not ever do it either. It is certainly not proof of salvation. It is just a way that God has given the church to build each other up and to proclaim the gospel. The principle we are to see, though, is that the power of the Holy Spirit will enable believers to serve others in some way. Upon belief, people were served. Why? Because of the mandate from Christ that we will be witnesses. How are we going to be witnesses without the power to serve? Because with the power of serving, it takes the focus away from us and puts it in its rightful place, God and other people. Speaking tongues, prophesying, administration, teaching, encouragement, all of the ways in which God has gifted us as believers. And it's not for us. It's for other people. In our text, we see just a few ways that this service shows itself. Paul speaks boldly about Christ in public. 
he reasons with and persuades people to believe. So it's not just that he's standing there preaching the gospel. He's talking to them. He's reasoning with them, showing them by the word, this is what it looks like. He disciples 12 men from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day for two years. People were healed, demons were exercised, and all the residents of Asia heard the gospel. All the residents of Asia heard the gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within believers will enable believers to serve because in that moment, it becomes about everything else but us. Without the Holy Spirit, life is just going to continue to be about us. We have no way of changing that except by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and helping us to see and to serve other people. How are you doing this currently? And when we talk about service, it's not necessarily something at church, although that is something, that's a great way to do it. How do you serve your spouse? How do you serve your kids, your boss, your friends, your enemies? The Holy Spirit enables service. And the second thing is that the Holy Spirit gives comfort. Because of the ministry of these 12 men and Paul, people are coming to faith. All of Asia is hearing the gospel. People are being healed. And evil spirits are being cast out of men and women by Paul. What happens is some people who exercise demons for profit, they use it as a trick. They see this and they're like, oh, that works. Let us use Jesus' name. Let us use Paul's name. And so they do, and they say, uh, well, let's cast these guys out with Paul. But the people who, whom they are trying to cast the demons out of, one of them has an unruly demon. And he stands and says, who are you? Jesus, I know. Paul, I respect. But who are you? Satan has an agenda for those who believe. There is a file with our names on it where he keeps all of our sin struggles and habits where uh, he has all of these ways that he can accuse and tempt us and his minions have studied it. They know Jesus and they know believers. Why? As unbelievers, we lived under King Satan. We were born into his kingdom and we did not see that we were enslaved to it. It was home. We had no clue that we needed to be rescued. The only way of rescue then was not for us to unbind ourselves. We didn't even know we were bound. It's not by working our way out of the chains. It was impossible. The only way out is if someone were to come and find us. And that's exactly what happened. By grace God, that God has extended to us, he sends his son Jesus to offer us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and freedom by his death. God gave sinners a way out. And by our trust and faith in Jesus, we die to this old kingdom that we were born into and we are ushered into a new one. And so now we're members of a new nation, citizens of a new kingdom, servants to a new king. The issue is that all we have ever known is slavery. So even though our chains are gone, even though we've been adopted into a new family, we want to put the chains back on. Even though we're adopted into a new family, we have a deep-seated compulsion to live as though we were back under the rule and reign of Satan. 
A man from Australia can be a new citizen of America and find himself driving on the left side of the road. Doesn't make him any less American. Legally, he is an American. But he can still live as though he were under the reign and rule of his old country. The same is true for believers. We can live as though we are under the reign and rule of our own kingdom, even though legally we are not there anymore. Satan and his minions have this agenda. They know who believers are. The second we believe, we put on the uniform of our new kingdom. And we will take shots. The enemy that kept us enslaved at one time is now furious that we're living for their enemy. And so they're doing whatever they can to distract us from Christ and our mission. Any act that could glorify God will see opposition from the enemy. Just because we died to our old kingdom does not mean that the kingdom died. But Satan doesn't care about unbelievers. They are not trying to live for Christ, so he doesn't even know their names. The demons don't know their names. And in a truly odd moment, we have verse 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit, in whom was the evil spirit, leapt on them, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. A key point to notice here is these men are not believers in verse 16. The text leads us to believe that at some point, uh, maybe some of them turn out to be, but not yet in verse 16, which is why this kind of undoing is possible. This is the power of Satan and his spirits. They can enter and manipulate and fight physically against believers, unbelievers. If you are not a believer in Christ, this can happen to you. Because outside of belief in Christ and the sealed Holy Spirit who takes residence in you, this is all you have. This is the state of humanity without a Savior. Mastered, overcome, ashamed, uncovered, with nothing to do but run. If you're not a believer and you feel this way, it's the work of the kingdom you live in as of now. But look at what this work can lead to. Ultimately, the name of Christ is lifted up and magnified. This outburst from the demon led them to Christ. We don't have a story like this recorded anywhere else, probably because Satan knew what the end result was going to be. Probably didn't let it happen any longer after this. God, in his infinite wisdom, allowed this evil to work for his glory and for the salvation of those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so if you are an unbeliever, do you feel the weight of the chains of your kingdom? There is a way out. Christ has made a way for sinners to be vanquished, for sinners' guilt to be vanquished. By this story, though, we see inversely a characteristic of the power of the Holy Spirit we have. If you are a believer, this will never happen to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this will never happen to you. You cannot be overcome. You cannot be overpowered or mastered by the kingdom that you have died to in Christ. 
If you're a genuine believer in Christ, you cannot be possessed by demonic or evil spirits. You have a new king, a new master, one who gives you comfort. John 14, verse 16 says this. This is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world they cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Where Satan and his minions tear down and shame, the Holy Spirit lifts up and shows Jesus. We have a helper. We are not in this life alone. The word translated helper means one who stands in the gap. We absolutely do take shots from our old kingdom, but we have one standing with us at all times. This comes into play in that the kingdom of Satan really only operates in the same kind of ways. Uh, Just with believers, it has no power. The name Satan means the accuser. Satan will accuse believers of being ashamed, of being wounded, mastered, and overcome, but it is only an accusation in Christ. That sin might feel like it has a weight of power over you. It might feel like a compulsion to sin, but in reality, Satan cannot bind you again if you are in Christ. We might feel condemned, but that doesn't mean that we are. If you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot be be possessed. You will be oppressed. You will take shots. The difference between unbelievers and believers is the truth of Satan's claim. In Christ, we might have guilt feelings, but we are not guilty before God. No matter how much Satan might accuse us to be so, because we have Romans 8.1 that says it all. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We might feel condemned. We might feel ashamed. But in Christ, it is not true guilt or condemnation. Christ has taken that for us. And the truth of that outweighs our feelings every single time. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the power that we have within us as believers. Where do you tend to despair most? Where do you feel overpowered, mastered? What sin do you have that you feel overpowered by? Have you asked for help? Have you remembered the God who dwells in you? The third thing is that the Holy Spirit produces true repentance. Uh, This scene becomes known to all, uh, all the people around, because it's a bizarre story. One commentator said, 
if when the fight started you were wearing pants and when the fight is over you are no longer wearing pants, you lost that fight. But the name of Jesus by this story was being lifted up because people are seeing, man, this demon as he cries out the name of Jesus, he cannot stay any longer. He knows that at the second he says his name, he's like, all right, I've got to leave. And he does so in a rage. Upon uttering his name, the demon cannot do anything but beat these men to a pulp. And it causes men to truly think about their lives and everything that they've lived up to to this point. Because they see this power. They see this power that Paul has, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit has given. They see it. This demon just fled in fear. And so we have verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. These are men who have made a living their whole lives on casting out these demons. They would use different means, but they see this power. And they say something, something different is happening here. This must be the true God. And so they're laying it all out there. They're telling God and their fellow believers, this is against your will, God, and I am sorry. They're confessing their sin. And it's wonderful, but it's not yet repentance. It's not true repentance if it ends only with a confession of sin. Sadly, this is where many well-intentioned believers stop. Maybe this is you. But true repentance is a turning away from something unto something else. It is a turning away from our sin with action. But so many times, repentance remains incomplete. And this happens because we're just sorry for being caught. We aren't sorry for the way our sin breaks the heart of God. Do you know how heartbreaking it is for Leah to hear me say that I'm sorry for something over and over and over and over again when nothing changes? The degree to which we see this about our God and about our sins against God is the degree to which we will be truly sorry. It was our sin that held him there. Do you view your sin this way? How does this happen? How can we view our sin this way? By the power of the Holy Spirit. John, elsewhere in chapter 16, says this. This is Jesus again speaking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That is how we will be brokenhearted over what we've done to God. But true repentance is what we see in verse 19. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a day's wages. 50,000 days worth of work burned. But this is really important for us to see because repentance is going to be costly. 
a friend told me that he struggled with an addiction to pornography for his whole life and realized one day that his phone was a big part of the problem. So he took it to the store, bought a cheap flip phone, uh, took his smartphone, smashed it with a sledgehammer. It's a little out there, but it's true repentance. It will cost us. It will cost us internet freedom. It will cost uh, comfort. It will cost ease. It will cost time, money, effort. Because repentance is not just an I'm sorry alone, but an I love you along with it. And since that's true, then I will give up whatever. Whatever price must be paid is nothing in comparison to the relationship I get to have. Of course it's scary. And of course it's extremely difficult to uproot idols from our hearts and to replace them, especially addictions. But we do not fight in our own power. That's how the idols got there in the first place. We have the God who created the cosmos dwelling within us, who desires for us to come to repentance, that we might fill our hearts instead of these idols with the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of death. This is the power we have within us. What sins do you have that currently uh, need this kind of costly repentance? Confessing sin is only half of it. If it never leads to costly repentance. Finally, how does this come about? How in the world do I access this Holy Spirit within me? Because it's really easy to just talk about it and to say I have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. Uh, But how do I do this? How do I turn away from myself to serve others when it's difficult to do so, when it will cost me to do so? How do I find any comfort at all in the midst of going through utter hell? How do I turn from these sins that I really do love so much? Romans 15, 13 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It comes by believing. By faith. By trust again that if we have believed, then Christ will never leave us. Because in the greatest moment of pain and agony, even unto death, he didn't leave us. If the cross was bore for our lives, how much more so will that same cross point over and over again to this love that Christ has for us? Not because we were lovely, not because we were great, but because he loves us. We are utterly sinful. We do have idols that are deeply rooted and we have this thing in us where we want to live back in that old kingdom. We want to go back to slavery. And because of that, we are fully deserving of just wrath from the Father. But Jesus Christ took it on himself the wrath that you and I deserved for the sins that we commit daily. 
Jesus took it on himself once and for all by the love that he has for us. This is what the Holy Spirit points us to. John 15, verse 26 says this. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Why do we serve? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. Why do we find comfort? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness to us about Jesus where we see that is where the safety and security of our relationship with our Father comes from. It's not because I'm good. It's not because I fight sin. It's because of what Jesus has done. That's where my safety in this relationship comes from. And why do we truly repent? Why do we take those extra steps? Why do we costly repent? Because the Holy Spirit bears witness to us about the cross, where our sins were bore, so that we might change. It was a costly cross. And so any cost that comes after that is nothing. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives to all who would believe. Does your life reflect it? The good news of the gospel is that we have no power to do any of this on our own, but Christ, in securing for us a life, an eternal life, has given us the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, the God who hung the stars in the sky dwells within us and will do these things in us. That's the hope that we have. We're going to uh, celebrate this good news of the gospel by taking communion together. And as we do, we're reminded of the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us. And this reminds us always, it's the reason why we do it every single Sunday because it reminds us of the true basis of our status with our Father. It's based on this body and this blood, not mine. And it reminds us, it guarantees us again that in the middle of whatever we have going on, we have a guarantee of the Holy Spirit within us who will help us, who will comfort us, who will stand in the gap for us. And there is nothing that he will not do for us. If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table uh, to partake as part of the family, as the indwelt Holy Spirit family. Uh, you're welcome to the table. If, though, you're an unbeliever or if you're in unrepentant sin, which is to say you are neglecting the Holy Spirit, you are pushing away the Holy Spirit, uh, I would ask that you remain in your seat. First Corinthians says that unbelievers and unrepentant uh, sinners are not worthy to partake of the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. However, 
if you would take this time to pray, to turn from your sins, you have the grace, you have the Holy Spirit within you that reminds you of Jesus, that says, you have a place. Come back. If you are an unbeliever, uh, the truth is, you have no comfort. You have no security that is going to last you. But if you would believe, if you would trust in Jesus Christ for the sake of your eternal life, this gift can be yours as well. Uh, For all of us, here's our prayer in this time. Father, I admit that I am selfish, fretful, and mostly only sorry that I was convicted of sin. Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit within me, enable me to serve? Would you give me comfort? And would you produce true repentance on the basis of your love for me in Jesus? I ask this in his name. Amen. Take your time to pray through what it is God has given you. Maybe it is to turn from your sins. Maybe it is to make a resolution now to costly repent. But whatever it is, uh, even if it is for the very first time that you are crying out for God to save you, whatever it is, take your time to pray through what it is God has given you in his word. And when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. How do we know that we can stop serving and preserving our own lives for the sake of serving others? How do we know that when we do that, God will provide for our needs and that we don't have to? How will we know when utter hell does come because it will, how do we know that we can have comfort? And how do we know that we can let go of this sin? How do we know that we can bear whatever cost to let go of it? By this body and this blood. It is by believing again that Jesus has done everything for our salvation. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we cannot thank you enough for such an act of love that though we were holy, undeserving 
that though we only deserved wrath, you desired to show grace to us. It is a mind-blowing, mysterious, glorious truth. And so, Father, now we remember. Would you help us to remember that this covenant is in Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. It is not based on us. It is not based on whether or not we could do it because we couldn't. Would you help us to lean into the truth of the gospel that says we were bought with a price. We are not our own. Help us to see Jesus. That though he had every means to be served, he came to serve. Help us to see Jesus. That he looked down and saw the sin and darkness of the world and what Satan has been doing and said, I will go. And would you help us to see Jesus? That since he has bore every cost, we can now freely give up whatever it is that keeps us from him. Help us to look always to the cross, to remember who we are truly in Christ. And because of that, because of the truth of the gospel, Father, would you help our hearts to sing? Would you let us truly reflect the power of the Holy Spirit within us as we sing our praises back to you, the only one who deserves it? Would you help us to rightfully show the glory that you deserve. And in all of it, Father, we thank you. We know that none of us deserve it. We have a thousand reasons why. And yet none of them have been strong enough to change you. None of them have made you leave us. And so we thank you We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.